You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. In Hollywood, during the 1930s and the 40s, Universal Pictures was the undisputed king of the monster movies. Time and time again, Universal would revive these four legendary monsters. The first one was Dracula. Ooh, scary. And then the second one was the mummy. Yeah, needs a facial. And the third one was the wolfman. Yeah, uh, there's a cute guy right there. And then the last one was Frankenstein. And these, these monsters would make numerous appearances over the course of the decades. But long before these four monsters roamed the screens of America, another foursome of creatures were wreaking havoc in the human heart. When these four monsters get lodged in the heart, they poison relationships, erode away our faith, and damage our character. Secrecy is their greatest ally. And left alone, They'll grow in power and influence like a lab experience that's gone terribly wrong. It's important to know something about these four creatures. And that is that they lose their power when they're exposed to light. When when they're exposed to truth, they begin to dissipate. The monsters I'm talking about are the focus of this series. And they are guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. Now, these four monsters of the heart are empowered by a specific dynamic having to do with debt. Give me a moment here to kind of explain what I'm talking about. Debt always causes an imbalance in relationships. Have you noticed that? If you owe someone money or they owe you, then you know there's an inequity in the relationship. There's always something there. No matter what else is going on at the moment, the debt is always in the room with you. You can't seem to escape it. Usually the person who's owed is the person who has what we would call the upper hand on this issue, but that's not always the case. Whatever the case is, things are not even. Someone has a distinct advantage, an upper hand. There's always an imbalance when you're dealing with debt. Now, there are only two ways to resolve the tension that you have that's caused by debt. Either one The first one, someone pays it off, or the second option is someone cancels the debt. As long as debt is unpaid or unforgiven, the debt controls the relationship, and it becomes a filter in which everything in the relationship runs through. And one of the things you need to know is that debt is is a power that influences these monsters that we're going to talk about through this series. Here's what I'm talking about. The monster of guilt says, I owe you. I did something, and it was so egregious, I owe you. The monster of anger says, you owe me. You did something, and I'm ticked about it, and you better, you better make it right. And the, the monster of greed says, I owe me. <laughs> There's something out there that I deserve. And the monster of jealousy says, God owes me. God gave someone something that I deserved, 
and now he owes me. The more you think about it, the longer you think about it, debt truly does create imbalances in relationships. And we're going to focus on the monster of guilt this morning. Guilt says, I owe you. Guilt is the result of having done something we perceived as wrong. Every wrong that we do can be reiterated as an act of theft. And if I steal from you, then the result ultimately is I owe you. I owe you. There's a discrepancy in the balance in our relationship. And I owe you. Consider the guy who runs off with another woman and abandons his family Without realizing it at the time, he has stolen something from every member of that family. He's stolen his wife's first marriage. He's robbed her of her future, her financial security, and her reputation as a wife. From his children's perspective, this man has stolen their father and all that the father means to a family. He's robbed them of future Christmas celebrations and family traditions, emotional and financial security, dinners with the family, and the list goes on and on. The only way that this guy can make it up for not being there to tuck Junior in at bedtime is for him to be there to tuck Junior in at bedtime. There's no no way to counterbalance that. This dad owes his family. There is a debt and debtor relationship that's been established. Whenever you and or I wrong someone, we create this same dynamic. We even have special terminology for resolving guilt. Have you thought about that before? I say, I owe her an apology. I owe her? What do I owe her? I owe her an apology. Why do we owe apologies? Because our heart tells us that something took place. We took something from them. We did something that created a void. And now we have a debt that we owe them. And the only way to make it right is to pay up. And it may be something as simple as an apology. Or it may be something far greater. Andy Stanley said this about this kind of debt. He says, nothing less then paying that debt will relieve a guilty heart of its burden of guilt. People try to work it off, serve it off, give it off, and even pray it off, but no amount of good deeds, community service, charitable giving, or Sundays in a pew can relieve the guilt. It is a debt, and it must be paid or canceled for a guilty heart to experience relief. Debt all, or guilt always causes imbalance. It causes a debt. Why do people exercise? Let me shift gears just for a second. Why do people exercise? Do people who exercise, do most of them like it? No, they don't. They don't. They start out well at the beginning of the year, right? But by January the 6th, they're done with the gym. I mean, if you don't like it, then why do you do it? Or let's talk about diet. How many of you like to diet? (laughs) That's good. There's humor right there. I didn't mean it to be funny, but I'll take it. I'll take it. If you raise your hand, do you have a diet that includes donuts? I mean, is that why you're saying I love to diet? 
None of us know about, none, none, of, us, none of us like to do that. And if, if we don't like to do it, why do we do it? The truth is, we do these kinds of things, exercise and diet, in order to take care of our bodies. You don't wait until your heart is healthy to start exercising. You exercise to get your heart into shape. And this is true about this heart that the philosopher and the poet refer to. We call it our heart, the center of who we are. It's the core of who we are. A changed heart is the result of forming new and good habits or exercises of the heart. You can't expect to break a bad habit that you've spent your entire life or many, many years in some cases practicing. It takes a habit to break a habit. You can pray every day for a generous heart, for example, but until you start exercising your heart to be generous, nothing is going to likely change. The truth is, old habits do die hard. Guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy are all habit-forming, and they don't go away easily. After practicing these habits for a long time in our lives, some of us even begin to see them as just part of who we are. They're not issues that need to be dealt with. They're just part of our hardwired DNA. We rationalize them by explaining, well, that's just the way I am, or the men in our family are notorious for having hot tempers, or I, I, what can I say? I'm just an emotional person, or I'm not, I'm not greedy. I'm just frugal, Okay. And we laugh it off that they're just, these bad habits are just personality quirks. But that doesn't change the truth. The truth is these are destructive habits that need to be broken. And it doesn't matter if a thousand people believe them, believe that something is true. If it's a lie, it'll never be true. No matter how many people think that's the case. The spiritual exercises that we're going to suggest in this series help to neutralize these monsters within that can destroy our hearts if we will consistently practice them in our lives. Like physical exercise, implementing these exercises is often a matter of sheer discipline. It's it's a matter of the will. As a runner, I have my whole life hated the first mile. It doesn't matter if it was a race It doesn't matter if it was a training run. I've always hated the first mile. And the reason is, is that no matter how much stretching I do, my muscles in that first mile always seem to, they just seem to rebel. They're not ready to run. My lung always seems to, my lungs seem to burn. I have more than one. I have two lungs. They seem to want to burn. I'm never fully uncongested. I'm oftentimes tired. All of this starts out, it doesn't matter. If I'm just running a few miles on the treadmill or I'm running a marathon, I hate the first mile. I always have to will myself to run that first mile. I sometimes think once I get past this first mile, then the second mile is always great. I love the second mile and the miles after that. But that first mile, I hate it. You have to will yourself. These habits for our heart will require us to follow our will, not our feelings. In the end, it'll be worth it. It's worth all the effort that you put into it. 
You know, I've never met a physically fit person who regretted all the work that was necessary to get into shape. I love the Jenny Craig commercials. You know, this, the picture there where it's really overweight. And then they have that, I lost 30 pounds on Jenny Craig. And they're always smiling, right? They're like, great. And I'm like, shut up. Where's the Doritos, right? Stop it. You're making me feel bad. They're never sad. They're always happy. They're always contented. I've never met anyone who regretted implementing a good habit. But you and I both know people who are paying the price for bad habits that they've never kicked. In horror movies, we learn that this truth that every successful vampire slayer knows. Okay, this is really deep theology. A little bit of light is all you need to separate the good guys from the dead guys. You know, the living dead, right? Just a little bit of light will show who's alive and who's dead. And believe it or not, but this is a powerful reality in life as well. Just like vampires in classic horror movies, they don't do well with light, neither do secrets and guilt. They also lose their power when exposed to light. Which brings us to the key point of this message. If you're looking for a solution to rid yourself of guilt, write this down. The habit that slays guilt is confession. Confession. I didn't say it was going to be easy. I just said it was effective. Confession exposes our secrets and frees the heart from the power of guilt. Several years ago, Lisa was a friend of Ann and I's. She had kept a secret for nearly a year. She had a three-month affair with her boss, which she had ended months earlier, but the guilt was eating her up on the inside. Through a series of events, Lisa came to believe that I knew about this affair. I was a good friend of her husband's, but she didn't see me as his friend that day that I was visiting their home. She saw me there as a minister of the gospel. I didn't know what was going on, but while I was there visiting her husband, she confessed to this affair. What? (laughs) I was just a youth minister. I wasn't prepared for this. There was no class in Bible college that said, how do you handle when someone just says, yes, I had an affair in front of their spouse? I went outside for a little while and let them visit. And then we started the process Bold and courageous leadership right there, folks. (laughs) Something happened, though, when when I went back in later with one of our senior staff guys to start the process of healing. Lisa was on the floor in the same spot where she was when I walked out about an hour and a half earlier. And it was right there where she had confessed her sins, that she had just been there the entire time, just pouring out all that was pent up inside of her. She finally released all of the guilt and all of the shame through her tears. She had kept this secret because of this sin, and now she was pouring it all out. It brought relief once the sin was in the light. Confession exposes our secrets and frees the heart from the power of guilt. There's a key verse 
in this talk that we're going to use, and it's probably the anchor verse for this entire message, is 1 John 1, 9. Some of you probably have memorized this. It simply says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confession does more than just make us feel good. It's part of restoring our relationship with God. But this is kind of an interesting thing because some see that this verse reveals a loophole about God's grace. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Several years ago, there were a couple college-age guys that were involved in the ministry uh, that I was serving. And one of them was having a conversation with the other one about what he had learned about grace. And this guy was a brand new Christian. The other guy had been a Christian a little while, but neither of them had walked with God very deeply for that long of a time. The first guy's name was Roger and Greg, and Roger said to Greg, he said, you know, I've been thinking about this grace, and the way I understand it is this. If you sin and you confess that to God, then he'll forgive you, and then you can go on your way. And Greg was like, yeah, I think that's right. To which Roger then said, well, then let's go down to Two Keys, pick up a couple of girls, let's have a really good time, and then we'll just ask for forgiveness. To which Greg said, I'm pretty sure that it doesn't work like that. And he was right. See, what Roger was looking for was God to hold up his end of the deal without Roger holding up his end of the deal. In fact, if you think about it, this kind of behavior, this kind of just asking for forgiveness in, in lieu of, I sinned, I know I'm sinning, I'm going to get forgiveness, that, just, that can end up supporting a person's sinful habits. I wonder sometimes, it's easy to see it framed like that among two college guys, but I don't think that a lot of us are that far away from that kind of thinking. In fact, I wonder if sometimes we think that God is just an idiot, leaving that that loophole out there. This kind of confession is not about changing It's just about guilt relief. We confess, yet knowing that there is a very good possibility to be right back here tomorrow confessing the same sin. Have you ever been there? I have. That routine has nothing to do with change. It is simply about wanting to feel better. Think about it this way. Imagine that you have a brother who continually stole from you. He's embarrassed you publicly all the time. He talks badly about you behind your back. But once a week, he comes by the house and he says to you in general terms that he's sorry. No sooner did you turn around, though, he goes right back at it again. No matter matter what the circumstances is, no matter what the circumstances are, He has the nerve to come to you and to ask you to bail him out when he gets in a bind. How would you characterize a relationship like this? Even if you were able to genuinely forgive him each and every time, what would you eventually think would happen to a relationship like that? Well, it's not a relationship at all. He's using you. He's insulting you. I mean, you're thinking, what kind of idiot does he take me for? 
Does he really think that I believe his apology is sincere when he turns right around and continues to do the same things against me again and again and again? Let's be honest. This approach to confession is something that oftentimes we do towards God. I wondered if you realize just how insulting that is to him. I mean, we certainly wouldn't dream of staying in a relationship with anyone who treated us this way. It's a good thing that God's love is unconditional. Otherwise, you and I'd be in a whole heap of trouble. Here's the irony of this type of confession. Like Tylenol, the pain reliever, our quick confession prayers take the edge off our pain, but they don't heal the wound caused by sin. This is why you find yourself repeating and confessing sins of your past over and over again, surprised that the guilt is still there. So here's the question. So are you ready to change? To actually live life in freedom without guilt? The English definition for confession is to admit to or acknowledge something. But in the Bible, confession is always associated with change. Confession goes much deeper than just feeling better. Confession involves actual change. So in the time that we have left, what I want to do is give you four simple steps. And I say simple, they're, they're easy to understand, may not always be easy to Im- implement. But these steps will bring change that will slay guilt in your life. The first one, step number one, confession. We've been talking about it already for quite a while. Confession is just one step, the first step in a sequence of steps that lead the guilty out of darkness and into light. Confessing sin brings it out into the open so that it's no longer a secret. This is a vital step. You cannot, you cannot miss this step. Think you can do the other three and you'll be fine. You have to take this step. Confession. Step number two, restitution. Restitution. In the Old Testament, confession was always public and was associated with restitution. Look at Numbers, the fifth chapter, verses six and seven. It says this, say to the Israelites, When a man or woman wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it all to the person he has wronged. For the Jew, confession wasn't about feeling better about yourself. It was about making things right with the one you've sinned against. In fact, from numbers, we see you're actually supposed to add some interest to that. You know, they, they didn't have that and because you took it from them. Now, you're going to repay it back and whatever they could have earned with that when they didn't have it because you stole it. You have to actually give them interest. It wasn't enough to be sorry. It had to get fixed. God was interested in change. And having to go public with your sin and make restitution certainly motivated people to change their sinful behavior. Step number three, repentance. Repentance. Mark 
the first chapter, verses 4 and 5, says this. And so John, he's talking about John the Baptist here. John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This was a public confession made in connection with public repentance. Now, repentance simply means to turn around. And the, the idea here was that people were living their lives for themselves. They were driving their own lives by their own, their own beliefs and their own desires. And they repent and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to follow the statutes, the directions that you've given me. That's what repentance was, was making a 180-degree turn. These folks were going public with their intentions to live different lives. They weren't confessing just to silence their conscience. They were ready to leave their sin behind and head in a different direction. Confession wasn't simply a means of feeling better about your sin. Confession was a public step toward abandoning sin. You see, God's not just interested in you saying you're sorry. He wants there to be change. These steps bring change. Step number four, restoration. Restoration. Some of you remember that little song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. You remember that? He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to. Help me out, folks. Come on. It's, Think, oh, that's weird. See? Okay. Okay. We got this idea that he's this, he's this cute little guy. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Zacchaeus wasn't cute at all. He was short, but he wasn't cute. In fact, he was infamous for being wicked. He was considered a traitor by his countrymen. He had wronged many of his fellow Jews. And he was leaving a trail of relational carnage in his wake. But he found Jesus and the hope and forgiveness that Jesus offers. And Zacchaeus knew instinctively that it wasn't enough to confess his sins to the Lord. Look what he did in Luke, the 19th chapter, verses 8 and 9. He says, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus had to fix it. And he knew he had to do an extreme step in order to fix it because he had messed up a lot with a lot of people. Greg was a student at the University of Kentucky, and while he was there, he had a part-time job the way he worked at a liquor store. One of the co-workers at the liquor store said to Greg one, uh, one day, after he started, just started working there, he said, hey, everybody who works here always takes like five or six bucks out of the drawer to buy their lunch. You know, the boss doesn't keep that close of a tab on the the balance in the drawer, so he never knows. Well, Greg knew it wasn't right, but if everybody was doing it, he decided to do it. And 
So he did that, and later he got a job and became very successful. It was about 10 years after college when Greg heard a sermon that absolutely brought him right back to that part-time job at the liquor store. He felt tremendous guilt, and he started this process of making inroads. He was going to apologize and then pay back this boss that he had cheated. He quickly learned that the owner of that liquor store had sold his business and moved. And Greg started to try to track him down, but eventually the trail grew cold somewhere in Texas, and he was never able to find him. So he came to see me, and we had this conversation to try to figure out a solution to address this theft and making the necessary restoration. And we talked for a while. And the thing about Greg was he needed to make this right. He just didn't know how. After we talked, I finally said to him, well, what is your plan? Because I wasn't going to tell him what to do. And he said this, I've decided I'm going to make two contributions of $1,000 to two nonprofit ministries in the name of my former boss. $2,000 is a whole lot more than what he took. In fact, it was probably four or five times the amount plus interest. It was a significantly greater amount than he stole. But Greg needed to repair it as best he could what the sin he had participated in had done. Public admission is evidence of a changed heart. Over and over, the Bible speaks of confession, not in terms of relief for the conscience, but as a changed life. Part of walking with God is making that call that you're dreading making. It's setting up that appointment that you know is going to be awkward from the minute you arrive there. It's writing that letter that you should have written a long, long time ago. It means humbling yourself, owning up to your part of the problem, and doing everything within your power to make those relationships right. And when you swallow your pride and you take that extra step, something amazing and remarkable happens. Guilt loses its foothold in your heart. It gets dislodged. And the power of sin is broken in your life. Open confession has the power to break the cycle of sin. If you start confessing your sins to the people you sinned against, odds are that you're not going to go back and commit those same sins again. (laughs) There's a high probability that'll never happen again. Maybe that's the reason, though, that we would just rather confess silently to God because it gives us an out. Some of you know the drill here. You confess it to God, but you're a repeat offender. And you're back the next day confessing it again. And the deal is is that you're not embarrassing yourself publicly when you do that. But what you think happens just once ends up becoming a pattern that lasts for weeks and weeks and then months and then before you know it, years and years. Guilty people are usually repeat offenders. As long as you are carrying a secret, you are setting yourself up to repeat the past. Confession, on the other hand, breaks the cycle of sin 
and guilt. So are you ready to shine some light on your guilt? If guilt consumes you today, maybe not totally, but you know when I bring up guilt, you know exactly where your mind goes, and you know the sin, and maybe, maybe you need to confess to somebody or some persons that you've offended. If guilt has been uh, a sin against God, the, the result of your guilt is due to a sin that you committed against God, then I want to encourage you to confess that to God with a close friend. Somebody will pray with you, or maybe your small group, they'll pray with you. But you need to shine light on it. And when I say shine light on it, it means somebody else knows about it. It takes a lot of courage. Maybe you've been living with the monster of guilt for sin that you committed a long time ago. Maybe it's even sin that you've been forgiven for. But for some reason, that guilt is still there, and it still continues to define you. And you'd love to run the race of life without that bag of rocks on your back, but you just can't find a way to cut that thing loose. Shine light on it. Take away its power by confessing it, even today. We're going to do something really different here at the end of the service, at the end of this message, excuse me. We're going to sing a song, and then we're going to do something that's going to challenge some of you. But I'm praying that you'll have courage to not stay where you are, but to take a step. Because what I'm going to ask you to do is, in just a moment, there are going to be some of our leaders down front, some of our elders, maybe a few of our staff. And I'm going to ask you, if you're carrying guilt, that you need to have some light shine on it, that you would just come and you would confess Whatever the sin was. Maybe it happened this morning. Maybe it happened 40 years ago. But shine some light on it. And let's slay the guilt this morning. So you can walk out of here in freedom. I told you it's going to take some courage. And here's the deal. Some of you are forgiven. You just haven't forgiven yourself. And part of what will allow that to happen is when you shine light on it. You share it with someone else. I promise you, too, if you're on the edge of your seat, because we're going to sing in just a minute after I pray, and you're on the edge of your seat and you're saying, I'm going, I promise you the devil's going to whisper in your ear, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. Those of you who are prayer warriors, you should pray that they can't hear that voice, because they do. You do need to do that. You could drive a stake in the timeline of your life saying, on this day, God set me free from that sin. I'm not saying it's going to be easy tomorrow. I'm just saying that finally set some light, shed some light on it and get some other people who can encourage you and pray for you and say, hey, you know what? You're not in this alone. Some of you need to make some repairs so that this monster within you, the guilt is eliminated and you can live with freedom in your heart. If that's you, I'm going to pray for you that you have the courage you need to. And then come and just share it with somebody and let that leader pray for you. Okay? Now here's what I'm going to ask the rest of you to do. I'm going to ask you that you not look at them. (laughs) Because there's nothing worse than thinking everybody thinks there's something really wrong with you. And the truth is we're all jacked up. You've heard that. 
Some of you are, some of you, <laughs> some of you, your problem is judgment. <laughs> You're a little judgmental. Oh, look at those sinners up there. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. I hope you'll pray. You'll pray with me. And then just keep your eyes on the screens. You'll be tempted to look to see who is that. If they have to push you out of the way to get out of the aisle, try not to look at them. Just give them grace. And here's the other caveat. Some of you maybe just need to come and have somebody pray with you. All right? So now, if somebody comes, you don't know if they're confessing sin or just asking for prayer. Done. So I gave you a little bit of cover. All right? I'm doing everything in my power except for grabbing you by the hand and bringing you down the aisle. I hope you'll do that this morning because some of you need to live life in the abundant freedom that Jesus came and died for. Let's pray. Lord, your word says, if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all of our unrighteousness. And God, for that, we say thank you. We are so grateful for your forgiveness and your grace. But will you help us, God, to realize that First, we need to confess the sin to you. And Lord, uh, the problem is when we confess it in secret, sometimes we end up repeating that sin. Not always, but sometimes. And if that's been the case, we need to put some light to it. We need to do that. We need to put light to it by confessing it to someone. And I pray that today would be the day that this whole front is filled with people is shining light on their sin. And having the guilt stripped out, crippling its power to control them, to minimize them, to devalue them. Lord, I pray for freedom today. Some have been under guilt's oppression for so long, it's almost become normal to them. Confession realizes, helps us to realize that that's not normal. I pray, God, that through confession you'll remove guilt's power and bring change, which will bring about freedom. God, you died so that we would be free from sin. I pray today that we would all leave here free because of Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. If you have a need, will you come as we stand together and worship our King?